This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we welcome two award-winning authors, American writer Daryl Pinckney and popular English novelist Zadie Smith. In this wide-ranging conversation, Pinckney and Smith talk about race, class, and Pinckney's new novel, Black Deutschland. Hey. Oh, gosh. Okay. We're both really nervous. Really so. nervous, yeah. We can't uh, help each other out here. Uh, oh, gosh. Um, well, my first question is going to be easy, or maybe, maybe complicated, depending on how you feel. Um, it's about High Cotton, which is 23 years ago. Yes. So, uh, in that gap, there's been all this extraordinary critical writing, but no fiction. I wondered about that gap, how you feel about it, why it happened. I remember that the Times asked Frank Conroy why 40 years elapsed between right. uh, Stop Time and the next book, and filmmaker J. Ann and I told him to say he was outrunning errands. <laughs> <laughs> the honest answer may have something to do with the death of my parents. Right. Um, and we talked about that before. I think it was, maybe it was Bella who said that part of late style is this death of the parents that nobody really so. speaks about because it suddenly gives you this freedom. Um, I actually wanted you to read, I thought you might say that, I want you to read just a little section of the book. It's the only section I'm going to ask you to read, which is about a death, and I think it's so beautiful. It's just there. No? Okay. Yeah? Double glasses? <laughs> How do double glasses? Oh, different glasses. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. It's just that section. All right. Oh, dear. <laughs> I recognize that laugh. <laughs> to look down at your father in his hospital bed sets off a wavering inside you. Your footing becomes insecure and you have to make an effort to keep your balance. Everyone has been dreading your arrival because of your history of inappropriate, inopportune displays, but that inclination leaves you once his face has confirmed for you your place in the great chain of being soon enough after his. The grimace lets you know that you have been awake. The momentary imbalance by the hospital bedside was you learning in an instant how to stand on your own. And it was uncomfortable at first, like any correction of posture. Thank you. Can I get off here? I, I love that passage, particularly the idea of a correction of posture. Um, and the novel, in some, to some degree, is about that correction. No? He's going through a movement where He's a young man, Jed. He's in reco recovery from alcohol addiction, from drug addiction. Um, he's from his upper-middle-class family in Chicago. His parents, his father dies in the middle of it. And he's going through a transition, a correction of a previous life. And he comes to Berlin seeking love and boys and adventure. Um, and obviously, the influence of Isherwood is very heavy over this book. He's mentioned in the first page. Um, I was thinking about that line. I'm sure you can quote it without me even bringing it up, but I am a camera with its shutter open. 
you know, the opening of um, the Berlin novels. Quite passive, recording, not thinking, recording the man shaving at the window opposite and the woman in the kimono washing her hair. And uh, I was thinking about the passivity of that eye, because there's some of that here too, no? That the eye in the no novel seems so passive, so set back, things are passing uh, over it. Um, and I thought what well, maybe is particularly suited to is a focus on collectivities, scenes, like scenes in bars, scenes amongst communes, scenes amongst a group of people who are not just fundamentally a married couple. There's this interesting eye that Isherwood has that you have, which is about recording a certain milieu. You see it in Giovanni's room in the Berlin novels. There's a quote by Gore Vidal that in the bourgeois novel, marriage is the only thing that concerns them because they think that's the only important thing in life. Mm. But in the gay novel, there's a different possibility, right? Mm. Not just recording the lives of two people, recording this scene. Yeah. I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Well, I can remember sitting up in the study hall reading the Berlin stories in this obsessive way that meant you weren't going to finish the term paper you had to. <laughs> and that book is rather coded, but if you can hear the dog whistle, it speaks and speaks and speaks to you. And then a few years later, he, Isherwood, published a memoir called uh, Christopher and His Kind. Yeah. And it was this rather irate concordance about everything he couldn't say openly at the time. Right. But I actually liked the coded book better because then I knew I was a member of a select club. Yeah. Um, Isherwood is an inspiration for the narrator, but he's not a model for me in this book. I no, don't the really sentences think. are completely different. The structure is very different. Well, yes. And also, he does these interesting things. In the Berlin stories, the women dismiss Isherwood, the narrator, as unsuitable for boyfriend material. Right. So he doesn't have to fake anything, and he's off the hook, and he can just be an observer. Right. And he's very much an observer. Uh, the narrator of this book is much more a participant in his grand mistake, yeah. which is what going to Berlin and staying in Berlin kind of is. I always think of uh, Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison and the way they couldn't find for themselves antecedents in 19th century American fiction that worked for them because race always got in the way, right. even Hawthorne or something like that. So they chose the Russians because the same themes were involved, freedom, serfs, national identity. Uh, and uh, the narrator I always have first in mind are these kind of rootless losers <laughs> from Dostoevsky. You yeah. know, like the guy says in The House of the Dead, okay, I'm just going to talk about this prison, nothing else. Or the guy in Notes from Underground says, I'm not a nice person, but you're going to listen to the story. Right. So it's that kind of... Well, I, I felt that about Jed, that he's lost almost... Lost guy. He's lost, and he's, he's thrice kind of alienated. He's got a mother who is turned towards activism almost more than she's turned towards him. Yes. You feel that. And parents, I think it's a very interesting kind of alienation not often spoke about, parents who are deeply in love with each other. Yes. And so focused on each other and, and almost not on the children as much. There's a beautiful line, only other people seem to find that love. Yes. And you feel like Jed is, his whole life has pursued a love that is unattainable and it's his parents' version yes. of this love. And then the other alienation is that there's a kind of cuckoo in the nest, his cousin, Cello, this beautiful girl with what was used to be called good hair, this massive flowing black afro hair that can do anything. Um, and she's in, 
his house because of some failures in her family. She came to his family house. So he's kind of pushed aside three times. Um, I, that alienation seemed to me all through the book, and I wondered if it was something you had felt. Or... Well, uh, my parents were certainly a love match. They argued up until the end about who let who win the ping pong game they played the day they met <laughs> right. when my mother was 16. And I don't mean a nice argument. I mean a knockdown, drag out. Right. You're a liar. No, you're a liar. Well, you consider that <laughs> no, sign of love, though. So they were intensely involved with one another. Right. One of the reasons I didn't grow up with so much black church is they had other things to do on Sunday. Please go watch television. Right. Um, <laughs> but we were very loved children, and we had an idyllic childhood. Yeah. You know, it was really, they worked overtime, as black parents did then, to keep you in the bubble. Right. Which meant that you had no free time. They weren't with you, but your every moment was monitored by someone. Yeah. who was going to uh, make sure you were safe. Um, the greatest fear my parents had when the 60s erupted was we would be somewhere they wouldn't know right. or couldn't sort of uh, defend us. And I remember they, my father was very adamant. The one thing you can't do is hitchhike with your friends. Uh, you can't do it, well, that sort of thing. So, no, I didn't feel that. Um, I felt other things as the one guy in high school, the one black guy who couldn't dribble a basketball game. <laughs> well, um, what, what about this thing of the... I felt a lot of self-rejection. <laughs> in the novel, all the way through, this idea of the Negro achiever. Oh, wow. Um, there's a great line, of, it's about Cello as well, but Cello's sister, Rhonda, was visiting in from her own life of Negro achievement as the lone black woman accepted into the neurobiology department at John Hopkins. Um, I think anybody in this kind of Negro achieving world uh, maybe there's some in the audience who've had parents who say to you, whatever you do, you have to do it twice as well, right? That's the, the motto of the Negro achiever. Um, but in your novel, there's a sense that there's also a kind of pathology of Negro achieving, that it's, that it's problematic or isolating in some way. Yes, I mean, uh, I actually stole that moment from a cousin's career, and she's now president of Trinity College, so wow. I hope she doesn't mind. But, uh, <laughs> No, I can remember growing up, all these people being pushed and excelling. Uh, there was an extraordinary woman named Alia Bundles who was a year ahead of me in school, and every prize seemed to float toward her feet. Right. She was so smart and charming, and she still is. It's really annoying. And, uh, <laughs> uh, um, but at the same time, I have a memory of people who were falling by the wayside, right or not measuring up, and especially in this time of the late 60s and early 70s when I was a student, because I'm older than the narrator, just for reasons of vanity, but uh, 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 people were, yes, not making the transition to opportunity. Right. There were enormous casualties, especially among women. Uh, but it was just too much to bear in a way. Right. And uh, there were... Um, um, yes, my, one of my sisters had spectacular breakdown, not unrelated to this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, what struck me, part of the news of the novel for me, and we talked a little bit about it backstage and things like um, the Margaret Jefferson book too, is, is the existence of an upper-middle-class black community, which from my perspective, at least growing up in the 70s, 80s in England was a phenomenon I, I had no sense of. I didn't really know it existed. You know, if you had someone 
Like my mother would occasionally put on what would be considered a good accent. If we met somebody else like that, our basic reaction was, well, we're faking, so you must also be faking. <laughs> because there was no context for this thing. It didn't exist. So, you know, you met someone else doing it, you were very aware that there's a double fake going on. But in, in this novel, there is like a real history, a real history of upper middle class achievement, of Negro achievement. Um, and everything I learned in my background from my mother about African-American life was about brutality and horror and struggle. So it's very interesting for me to come here to read books like this and realize that in these pockets, another life was happening. And I just wondered, from the life you lived, how you experienced it? My father would insist that this life of Negro achievement cannot be separated from the brutality right. of its context. Um, and neither can the achievers. You know, there is no away, there's no separation. Right. Uh, in the old days, all black classes lived very near one another. And then, you know, uh, if there was white flight, there was brown, beige, high yellow flight as well, right. uh, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I think one of the things that Margot Jefferson's marvelous memoir does uh, is to remind us that uh, class aspiration was at one time a radical uh, act or a radical right. motive for black people, because white people didn't want you to leave the plantation. They didn't want your barbershop to succeed. They didn't want you to go to college. They didn't want you to have Latin in yeah. college, because all these things violated their sense of what Du Bois called personal whiteness. Um, it wasn't until the late 50s, with uh, E. Franklin Fraser's book, Black Bourgeoisie, that all of this was rather demon demonized, that black middle class. And, Du Bois also raked everyone over the coals for wanting to play golf instead of right. uh, joining the NAACP. And then in the 60s, uh, middle class life became an object of scorn anyway. And so blacks were doubly scorned. Right. For aspiring uh, for this yes, thing that for had fallen trying out of to be us. white. Right. Uh, which you know, was a deep insult because these people had found a way to be black. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't respected at all. And so Margot Jefferson sort of restores the, um, uh, that 60s generation in the proper historical continuum where you know, Negro achievement is not selling out. In fact, it's the, what could be more opposite. And yet in the novel, there's a lot of, um, uh, I don't want to use the word bitchiness, but, but towards Cello from Jed, there's a lot of anxiety around her about her upper middle class Berlin life her English nanny, her butterscotch children. He feels kind of alienated by them. He's in a back room. He feels they've been told, the children have been told to keep away from him. Um, it's one of the most engaging relationships in the book. Um, but you do get the sense that Cello's uh, pride in her Negro achievement is part of the problem, that she's separated herself deliberately. Well, I think that she's meant to come off as someone who, if she knows herself, she's not going to tell you that she does. Yeah that she's a sort of fortress character because she's got no more friends than he does, and yet she's integrated into German life by virtue of having married into this family, been loved by this man, and, and had children who are German right. uh, more than they are anything else. So but she's I think imperious. She's not particularly compassionate. Towards no, Jed. There's no. a great line. She lived by the social philosophy that if you heard what she said about you, then you were meant to or you wanted to, and at least she wasn't ignoring you. 
It's like the worst kind of woman, <laughs> but brilliantly described. Oh, that's all right, Dan. Um, uh, all the way through, there's a fantastic eye and attention to women, what they wear, how they talk. There's one moment where Jed's having an attempted sexual encounter with a woman. The line is, up close, that pachyderm's ear between her thighs raised alarm, <laughs> which is pretty good. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm worried about that. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, but Cello's hair... I didn't want all the guys to look great <laughs> and the women to look behind. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's very much on the outside of Cello's life. He, there is an incredible fascination with the accoutrements of her life, her hair, the way she eats, the way she talks, that this kind of um, obsessive observation. Um, and I wondered if you thought at all that some of the originating spirit of your writing, even maybe the, your childhood interest in, in description, comes from that kind of... Voyeurism. No. no. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I've always had bad eyesight, so the visual aspects of life <laughs> are not my strongest. You know? uh, fortunately, I sort of live with someone who is all visual, so I just follow. Um, I think it has more to do with the kind of books on my mind. Yeah. I like strange little sly things like Bruno Schultz, and there are a number of women in that. And certainly when I was a student in the 70s, what women were writing had a lot to do with uh, uh, the fiction I went on to write, because right. a lot of that was also in the first person. You know, this is, I am the witness of my experience, which I don't trust anyone else to tell you, not even an omniscient narrator, so. Well, I want to ask you about that. There's a great interest in architecture in the book. Jed works for an architect, and ideas about how the shape of a city enables life within it. Um, and the book itself has a very interesting architecture. It has a very particular form. It's in the first person. I've heard it described as, it's not really stream of consciousness, but there's an interesting rhythm to it. And I thought whether you had specific ideas about form, about form in a novel and what this form allows you to do that, for instance, the third person, more staid narration wouldn't do. What is it about this first person, almost riffing tone that attracts you? Just that, that you can sort of do that and I think uh, there was a book called The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Band by James Weldon Johnson, primarily a poet, published in 1912. Not very good, but uh, <laughs> it's about this guy who succeeded in passing for white all his life uh, as a sort of successful industrialist with children, a widower, and he's going to tell us why he feels his life is a failure because he stopped being black. And that kind of uh, autobiographical voice was, was something uh, I thought worked with the West Berlin scene, since it's such a vanished place and was such an artificial place that uh, I wanted a witness who was sort of close up but not responsible for everything, uh, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he's witnessed to it is various kinds of, of revolution. Um, political revolution, social revolution. There's a line I wanted to quote to you, which I really like. The women were the grunts of the revolution, the ones who didn't miss the meetings, who put away the chairs and made the calls and brought the coffee and kept the minutes. Um, there's a kind of feminist consciousness throughout it which recognizes what women suffered in the revolution, which I really liked. But there's a more general idea that the revolution is always a, a battle in black literary life and black literary culture. Um, that there's one side that's interested in the revolution above all, 
and one side which is leaning towards the art for art's sake argument. And you wrote recently in this uh, review of Ta-Nehisi Coates um, about the demands that go back and forth, like Richard Wright finding Langston insufficiently angry, and then Ellison finding Wright insufficiently artistic, and then Baldwin denouncing Wright, and then Leroy Jones denouncing Baldwin, and back and forth it goes. And you have a scene in the novel of Jed kind of participating in this argument. He, in the commune he's living in at that point, Elridge Cleaver's soul on ice is in the bookstore, and he wants it removed. And some of the commune feel, well, it's a... It's an act of revolution, this book, it should stay. And you have Jed saying, to them, it was a classic from the black American revolution of the 60s, but to me, it had nasty things to say about gay black men wanting to have babies by white men, and the rape of white women as Cleaver's personal retribution for the Vietnam War. Um, the argument in the book ends almost inconclusively, but I wondered where you stood in this perennial battle between anger and art in black literary culture, or whether you think it's a false dichotomy, or... Uh, no, I mean, uh, Eldridge Cleaver was referring specifically to James Baldwin, so it was quite an affront and very wounding to Baldwin, who had no choice but to act as though, well, we have to understand men like Eldridge Cleaver, which was the same thing women said in response to some of those things he was saying then. Now we sort of don't really feel that way. Right. But at the time, there was a great deal of pressure, and it was all the more annoying because they gave Baldwin the Panthers flack about it, or Eldridge Cleaver did, but he didn't bother Jean Genet. Right. It was okay for him to be all of that. So, but Huey Newton had a completely different take, and he was better looking than Cleaver. Yeah, you mentioned that in the novel. He was very good looking. Not <laughs> an excuse, but still. Yeah. Know, he was okay. You know. Sure, I'll take my shirt off and take a picture, and you can hang that up. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things you're but, describing in that quote is a kind of early version of what the kids today call intersectionality. No, it's not just that this man is uh, a black revolutionary hero. He also has these other views that are also significant. There is a community within this community, a gay black community. Um, so do you, uh, do you feel a sympathy with these new movements now? Or do they seem distant? From yes, I mean, the book uh, means to capture certain things uh, in uh, its early beginnings, you know, just glimpses of things we didn't understand at the right. time, like the resentment of the Muslim character in the yeah. book for his invisibility, or, uh, uh, you know, AIDS uh, once again made being gay uh, a terrific sin, and, and, right. and the atmosphere of the 80s of this was a punishment uh, for that way of life was very strong. Uh, uh, and so um, I think that, uh, or I hope, that one can see the beginnings of certain issues then, but uh, it was a time of transition. Right. You know, and if anything, the narrator is stuck in a dream that's already obsolete, right. and he's sitting there going on about it, going on about it, going on about it, and then reality sort of calls a new tune. And I, found, I find, or I hope that's true to the experience of West Berlin at that time, because it's the way I lived, right. and the way everyone I knew there lived who wasn't German. Um, the Germans had a life to go on with. The camp followers of the occupiers had tough questions to right. ask themselves. Um, the only person I met or I knew who thought for sure that the Berlin Wall would go down was Susan Sontag. <laughs> really? And one everything. time we were talking about it, and she was going on and on and on and on and on, and she actually walked into the wall. <laughs> I promise you, I'm not making that point. Boom. <laughs> um. 
one of the central ideas of the book is that uh, Berlin and Paris and Rome are these sites of escape for black Americans, or at least uh, a kind of fantasy world, a different kind of world from the one they live in here. Um, and that struck me too, because it is, again, so different from black British experience, where those cities uh, do not have the same romantic hold at all, in which black British people are much more likely to think, well, if I go to Paris, I'll get more of the same, probably a little worse. So I'm, I'm wondering where you think the romance, all these incredible artists, from Augusta Savage to Baldwin, and now Tarnese Coates, um, yourself in Berlin, um, what is this, the central pull, and why is it so different for European blacks, the image of these cities? It's very different because of colonialism uh, uh, and the population being elsewhere. Right. It's taken in, uh, the UK a long time to realize that its black population has been there for a while. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Tudor had her Privy Council promulgate an order in 1596 that expelled the Blackamoors from London because they were too numerous and non-Christian. So, you know, it began sort of before Windrush. Whereas slavery, New World slavery, put the other, as it's called, uh, right here, uh, sort of right here. So I think that's the difference. That, yeah. And all the class things are acted out in a colonial context that you don't see. Right in London, uh, and so the idea of Black Britain is rather new compared to here's emancipation, and this is then what happens. Right. Um, uh, the, it goes back again to the pressures uh, one can feel. Uh, uh, I suppose in, in the black world, but I don't want to overstate uh, how deliberate that is. It's just the way one feels because you don't fit in. Well, there's a line in the book, I never wanted to belong, I just wanted to be left alone. And I wondered if part of the escape is an escape from allegiance. There's many scenes in the book, dramatizations of a certain kind of allegiance with the community, which Jed is always wriggling out of one way or another. That's probably true. That's probably true. And, and then it's meant to be a question whether or not he's chosen well or chosen widely. Right wisely, or if it's even possible to make this kind of escape. Right. I think that uh, for a long time, I worried that um, I liked uh, white boys and therefore it said something about me as a black guy. Right. Um, uh, and it took me a long time to figure out that what you want is the freedom that that white world represents. Right. Uh, and can remember in the There's 70s. a lot of guilt attached to that, no? Well, that of course, idea. because it's another way out for you. Yeah. You know, these individual solutions to a mass problem right. inspire a lot of guilt. You know, exceptionalism is a very guilt-producing sort of thing, and not everyone handles it, and they're different forms. Um, but... Uh, but the exceptionalism works the other way around. No, with allegiance that you also have to sometimes assert the general over the particular. Like there's a case in the novel, um, I think when they're arguing about Huey, right? And he says that for the people in the commune, he says, the, oh, I've got quote, the black men weren't going to give him up just because his shit had gone wrong. For them, he'd been the man when they needed him to be. Violence is not the issue, policies are, one session man said, as though quoting a line from a song. And somebody else says, he was fine, that man was so fine. 
But that's about asserting, there's a particular case here, right, of a man who's behaved very badly, who is violent, and one has to instead state this general allegiance. Like maybe the most obvious modern example is OJ, right, when you have to state the general oh, over man. the particular. And that's a difficult, I mean, that's the other end of exceptionalism, where you have to submit something, some idea to a, to a larger principle. I can, when calling my parents during the OJ trial, I thought they'd lost their minds. Yes. Yeah, I mean, because they thought right. he was innocent, and I. Yeah. It was the first time I was in America. Yeah. If you weren't here, you didn't know. Yeah. You didn't get exactly the whole it. back and forth sort of bombardment. Um, uh, wait, ask me the question again. I'm saying it's part of escaping to a different place about getting out of those kind of questions. Those incredibly complicated questions of allegiance where you will have to submit some aspect of yourself, maybe your moral opinion, maybe your personal aesthetic view, maybe a particular argument that you have to a general consensus. Yes, but I think it has more to do with what am I getting away from versus what could I have contributed had I stayed. Right. The, the sort of drama that Baldwin acted out with himself. Right. And he's in Paris and he sees the headlines from the South and thinks I should be there sort of witnessing. There is that. Yeah. Uh, when I f left for good, as I thought, you know, this sort of Bush-Reagan White House thing had been going on for a long time. It was rather depressing, so I had no trouble uh, uh, enjoying the distance from right. uh, the United States, and I rather miss that now because uh, our political yeah, life is it at its lowest uh, in my lifetime. Um, there's a, a line of yours where you say, it's in a review somewhere, that blackness is an unasked for existentialism. So whatever you do, you're stuck in this battle. Sort of. Yeah. These things, you, you are, become internal. But a useful one, yeah. And you take them with you and you sort of try to turn it into an advantage, which is to see something from a slightly different perspective. Right. Uh, as long as you can, you know be clear or, or honest, I think that's the hardest thing. It's not believing your very high rhetoric about your own actions, right. but it's sort of being clear about what's driving you along. And then in fiction, you try to hide that and make it something else. Well, I think you're expert at that. There's always a side-winding view on what seem to be uh, central issues, like uh, with the question of black power or black cultural images, Daryl has a line, the statue of St. Maurice in the Gothic cathedral at Magdeburg was my idea of black power. The look of him, helmeted, male, 13th century, and black. I don't think many people have thought of St. Maurice as a symbol of black power. But your, your mind... Hey, he's very black, yeah, and he's, he's very in military gear. Yeah, he's very black, and he's in military gear. And, you know, he wins, so... Right, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, he wins. Um, yeah. I, was, I was thinking about images of black power, contemporary images of black power, and I... I wanted to talk a, a bit about Beyoncé because I feel all cultural conversations these days should probably finish with Beyoncé. And when I emailed you that video a few days ago, because he's a big YouTube fan, um, you replied that the costumes look pure Kate Chopin, who is a turn-of-the-century like white American writer, and it made me laugh. It's this kind of aspect of Daryl that I really enjoy. It's this incredible sideways view on what seemed to be Centrally, it was the last thing I would have expected as a reply. Those costumes look like Kate Chopin. Um, but I wondered what you thought about, uh, like in that video, you've got very uh, shared, centralized images of black power, some of them which must seem incredibly familiar to you with your encyclopedic knowledge of black history. 
I think that's fair to say now, encyclopedic knowledge of black history. Um, and when the images are simplified in that way or restated, do they bore you, interest you? Do you see their necessity? Does it seem distant from your concerns? Or Well, the first thing I feel looking at a Beyonce video is old. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> you know, and I'm not sure I understood it. It is very much a sort of deep change because of hip-hop from my political generation, the attitude toward materialism. Uh, of course, the revolution was righteous, and so you expected right. people to give up all this stuff, which, you know, no one wanted no, to. They, You'd no. go to the demo and then sneak off and have, yeah. you know... Yeah, they like the swag yeah, still. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, and so they're over that. You know, this generation doesn't feel any contradiction between success right. and being black. Uh, and I think that's really very good. Right. And here's this woman married to this tycoon, and she's a tycooness, and she's got an amazing body and can do this stuff that my mother would really not approve of. <laughs> uh, you know, it it's would shock her so much. And the lyrics I found shocking once I understood them. I didn't get them right away, and so right. it was depressing not to speak this language of youth like that. Right. Uh, for one thing, which is why I was sort of saying, well, Zadie, what is she talking about? <laughs> wait, but, I didn't know I'd be outed as an old fogey. No, but, but wait. <laughs> Beyonce not, may not be your historical moment, but at the end of this novel, you have this... Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick though. Lamar. You have this extraordinary historical moment. The book kind of uh, meets history. Jed actually is at there when the wall comes down. He's in that moment. And there's a beautiful crowd scene as they're approaching this kind of fantastic uh, conclusion of the novel. And I wanted to know uh, if you were there, because I don't actually know that, if it's based in truth, because Chicago in this book is an entirely man imagined scenario. But were you there at that moment, and what was it like for you? I was. Um, uh, I was doing a... Uh, I'd met uh, in New York uh, through a very good friend, the American theatre director Robert Wilson. And then I met him again when I was in Berlin, and he... Uh, sort of started drawing on a piece of paper these scenes, and he said, would you like to work with me? And my job was to try and find this East German playwright named Heiner Müller uh, to get him to write the text for this piece or to help him write it. They'd done a piece called Death and Destruction in Detroit Part Two, and the text was a letter from Heiner about why he couldn't write the text. <laughs> Bob used that as the text, and it was a hit, but he didn't want to risk it twice. Right. And so I chased Heiner Müller all over East and West Berlin. It was really uh, an extraordinary seminar in German literature. I'd never met anyone who hated Thomas Mann before. Um, you should get out more. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like Thomas Mann? Why not? It's not the, that's not the purpose of this conversation. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, carry on. Well, anyway, working in a theater, you made friends and you learned the language. So I'm grateful to Robert Wilson for giving me a life in Berlin. And we were in the middle of rehearsals for a piece, and this woman from the costume department said, uh, um, you know, the wall is gone, it's Vec. And I said, what? And jumped in a car and went off. And then, yes, it all unfolded very quickly. And I never felt more American than at that moment in my life. So what does that mean to feel American in Berlin at that moment? Lonely. Yeah. Lonely. The sea of people on their own thing, and you weren't the center of it. Right. It's a shock for Americans. Americans, of course, <laughs> thought they were at the center of it. They thought it was their idea, breaking down the wall. Yeah, but no? Yeah, yeah. You had Hasselhoff yeah. on top of it. There were some Americans yeah, who yeah, felt no, very... Yeah, yeah, suddenly 
American, the American presence became a rather marginal preoccupation. Right. And then unification has been a great success, James Fitton always says, considering what could have happened, and that's true. And I really think Merkel is rather brave, especially with the Syrians this summer. Right. And it's a great pity that all that happened because it was deliberately to make it harder for the Arabs in Europe to be wanted or to sort of people to trust them. It's a terrible sort of moment. Yeah, no, it's impossible to think of the equivalent in England, the same yeah. generosity. No, so um, all right for Mrs. Merkel and hope she gets to talk to another woman <laughs> here. Um, we're going to open it up House. for questions, I think, if we have time, Jean. <laughs> if anybody has a question of any kind. I can't believe you all came on such a cold night. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Daryl. Thank you. <laughs> I don't do an Ethel Merman imitation anymore. <laughs> that part of the book is true. Hello. Hello. It's wonderful to see you both here. I'm a huge fan of both of you. You're very kind. Uh, my question is, what is the experience of writing, you as an American writing in Europe and traveling, and you as a European writing in America, and does that, you know how some people once they live in another country and they start to dream in that language, how does that affect your writing? Um, I think for, for me the big difference has been has been blackness. That that really is the truth of it. It's just about uh, it's, it sounds very sentimental, but for me, like a feeling, a, a new feeling of being part of a, a large community. I think it was always there in England too, but I was younger, maybe more isolated. I had a Jamaican community, but not this wider sense of a black diaspora. I, the books, the culture, just things I've come into contact here, with here have been very... Uh, it's just changed, it's changed some things the way I write. It's changed the novel I'm writing. Um, changed a lot of my ideas. Um, and just made me see... Oh, I love Britain, but it's quite parochial in a lot of ways. You know, there's a lot of things I didn't understand, I didn't see. Um, so it, for me, it's been a, just an opening up. I think... Uh one of the dangers of expatriatism for black writers is that uh, you think time stands still and you're very trapped in your moment. It happened to Richard Wright oh, yeah, that his voice true. got out of date. He completely missed the birth of cool because he was still running over the rooftops in tabloid newspapers. So, uh, you don't hear yourself age when you're living someplace else. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on in England anymore. That's true. That's happened already, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well. Fred is coming. Hi, Fred. Oh, no. We both know Fred. <laughs> oh, oh, two of my favorite people on stage. Um, Daryl, you already know, like, Yes, your understanding of this is hugely encyclopedic. So it's really cool to see you guys framed here together because I wanted to hear 
um, of, I guess, sort of, I guess I won't ask, like, Daryl, what do you think of Zadie in this larger black diasporic literary tradition? But I am Most interested. Most needed voice we've had in a long time. Uh, okay, no, so please. Sweet, so. <laughs> Added context there would be great, but I'm also curious about, like, what you all think about, like, black letters right now, like, larger, because it seems like the, the diasporic perspective is broadening hugely. And Zadie, you obviously can speak to that as well. So, cool. Well, for me, I'm sure it's similar for Daryl. The most exciting thing is African writing. You know, when I was a kid, when you asked about African literature, you were given things fall apart, and that was it. So here's things fall apart, you're done. And I think if you're 12, 13 now, that's just not true. Oh. I would have loved to have been young at this moment and to have seen this explosion. Um, that's exciting to me. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time in West Africa recently, so I think the thing you also notice what I notice, because I'm class preoccupied, is the thing to remember is that a lot of the African writing is of a particular class. I think that's fair to say, no, um, necessarily, but it tends to be the writing of a certain of community, language, right? Yeah. Um, so it's still not the broadest version of African writing, but I'm still excited to hear those voices because they were just—they didn't—I was—they were not known to me when I was a kid, and not for lack of searching on my mother's part. You know, she would really pursue it, but it was very hard to find material like that. I think uh, in addition to black literature being international, uh, uh, for a long time it seemed that it existed only in the academy, only in universities, uh, and sort of nowhere else, and the universities were sort of repositories of liberal traditions, right. including African-American literature. But then at the same time, the arts were becoming more professional in themselves, which is not necessarily a good thing. It used to be if you told your parents you're going to be an artist, they freaked out. Now uh, they pay 60 grand a term now, for you to continue. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it used to be if you told your parents you were gay, they freaked out, but now they just want to meet your boyfriend. So yeah. it's all become rather normal. And professionalization is not the best thing for no. the arts, I don't think. So one thing black lives matter uh, that it's done as a movement is to sort of connect the classes in black America again in that old-fashioned way that what happens to one happens to all and so these stories of anxiety about class integration you know had their place and and but have moved over for the larger picture of you know why do why does the United States have so many people in prisons most of them black men how did that sort of happen right. uh, uh, Reverend Ferguson, the sky met in, no, Reverend Sekou, the sky met in Ferguson, was arrested last fall for praying while black, he said, and he had a jury trial today, cost $50,000, he was found sort of not guilty. Uh, but uh, just uh, sort of says that anyone can be sucked into the system, so get interested now. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I remember Occupy Wall Street, and I think that that did more to clear a psychic space for Black Lives Matter than we appreciate. This kind of being in the street and you can get this issue addressed. No one was talking about income equality right. before then. You know, so it's kind of the same thing, and it's good to see, I think. Did that make any sense? <laughs> So, anyway, thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh,
That went so quickly. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.